If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to take a a one-week break from our study in the book of Acts because this morning uh, we've had a busy morning already and I want to just take this time. Uh, I I know I didn't give you guys as much time, so you're still getting settled here. That's fine, but we we still got some stuff that we want to accomplish this morning. But I want to take this time to, just to focus our, our hearts and our minds on everything it is that we're doing today. And, and I just want us as a body, as a church, to be able to understand and recognize uh, the significance of the ordinances that God's given to the church. Baptism, the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, I, I think I've mentioned this before. We don't have seven sacraments. Uh, God's given the church two ordinances, and that, that's what we keep. And we've already seen you know, those three brothers and sisters submit themselves to believers' baptism. And that's exciting. It's always a time of celebration when we get to do that. And we're going to close out the service partaking in the Lord's Supper together. And these ordinances go hand in hand. As, as believers, baptism guards the front door of the church, who gets in, so to speak. And the Lord's Supper guards the ongoing membership and fellowship that we have as a church. Because we shouldn't be able to stay out of fellowship with the Lord or with each other you know, for more than a few months, we, we, we take the Lord's Supper every quarter. And it should always be a time where we examine ourselves and our walk with the Lord and our walk with each other. And we are to examine ourselves in the light of what He did for us. See, the Bible says that we've been bought with a price through His great sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, because we've been bought with a price, we ought to live our life a certain way. And that way should be his way, and not our way. So today, we remind ourselves of that fact, and that's what this ordinance is about. It's a time of remembrance, a reminder of who Jesus is. Luke 22, 19, on that last supper before his crucifixion, speaking of Jesus, it said, He took bread and gave thanks and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do." in remembrance of me. This do in remembrance of me. Jesus told us why we are to keep this ordinance, to remember him and to remember what he did, to remember the body that he gave and the the blood that he shed. And that remembrance should stir up something in us. It should stir up thankfulness. It should stir up gratitude that then results in action. You see, many believers today claim that they're thankful for Christ's sacrifice. But like we talked about last week, I don't think God cares what we claim. I think he cares what we live. So this time of remembrance should drive us to live a life that's glorifying to the Lord. So with that in mind, that's my only goal this morning. As we take these times, these focused times, to look at the Lord's Supper, my only goal today is to remind you of the man Christ Jesus. And so I've titled this message, The Man We Are Remembering. So I'm, you know, I'm not even necessarily trying to teach you anything new this morning. Maybe some of you will learn something new because God's good like that, but that's, that's not my goal. My, my goal, as always, in a, in a time like this is to paint a picture for you and, and paint a picture that will lead to a position of thankfulness. And I believe there's no greater passage to do that from than Isaiah chapter 53, where I had you turn already. A very popular passage of scripture. If you've been around church, certainly this church very long, it's one that many of you, I'm sure, 
know quite well or familiar with. And I'm not going to attempt to do anything special with this passage because this passage is special all by itself. But like I said, what I do want to do is paint a picture for you of Jesus who is described in this chapter. Because the truth is, our view of him, our view of God, our view of what Jesus did for us really impacts how we live out our Christian life. That goes without saying, but, but I'll say it anyway. And I even put this on your outline sheet. I believe the greater appreciation we have for God and for Christ's sacrifice, the greater devotion we will have for him. The greater appreciation we have, the greater devotion will result. And I say that, and I know that's true, because that statement is absolutely true of me. When I lose sight of what we're going to talk about this morning, I get selfish. And I start to think that, that maybe there's something in me that's, that's pretty good and worth saving. And, and that my service for the Lord, maybe it ought to be commended a little bit. And that's just not true. My little service is the least I can do. And it doesn't even begin to compare to what Christ did for me. And I think we can gain clarity on that fact in this prophetic picture found in Isaiah 53. Uh, to me, it's one of the most incredible chapters in all of our Bible. It's tragic and yet beautiful. And, and, and that's, that's Christ. And that's the picture that we have of him. And, and we really don't have much time to get into it. We're, we're going to look at the first five verses this morning. But let's look at it together. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, the Bible says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as in tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time we have today. And this has just been a great uh, time in your house as we've seen believers get baptized. We've heard from Mike and, and what you're doing in Cambodia. And, and um, Lord, now as we just center this time on you and who you are and what you did. And so I pray that you do that now, that you calm our hearts and you get us focused on what we need to be focused on and to remember what it is that we need to remember. And so Lord, I pray that this service is, is honoring to you. It's glorifying in every way. And Lord, I pray that, that what's said this morning is true to your word, and, and Lord, that your word is exalted um, as it should be. And Lord, we love you. We're so thankful uh, for what you did for us, what we are remembering today, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it's hard to understand how anyone can read this great chapter and not see Jesus in it, and yet there are those that miss it. The nation of Israel missed it altogether. Now, now, to be fair, even Isaiah, the author, couldn't have had a complete grasp of what it was he was saying. I mean, it was still in mystery form at the time of his writing. He knew nothing of the cross. But make no mistake about it, 
This chapter makes up one of the great prophecies speaking of what was at the time of of the writing, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And doctrinally, this passage speaks specifically of the Jewish rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, but but this passage is way deeper than that, and it, it speaks to us about who our Savior is and what he did on our behalf. You know, sometimes Jesus is maybe compared to Superman or, or name your, your favorite superhero. But I, I want you to know this morning that any description of Jesus that we come up with in our, in our human brain does not do him justice. He's no superhero. Superheroes long to be like him, if only. In fact, the Bible says that he's indescribable. In Job chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Psalm 145, verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not read, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not? Neither is weary. And he's, he's just, he's, a, he's an unsearchable, amazing God. And yet, Isaiah 53 tells us that this indescribable and unsearchable God, a God who describes himself in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That man... The man Christ Jesus, and according to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, became a man of sorrows. And that is just an absolutely incredible title. You know, we sang that hymn, the last song we sang this morning, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And it starts with this line, man of sorrows, what a name. And I can, when I sing that hymn, I can barely get past that first line. And this is part of the picture I want to paint this morning. And it brings us to our first portrait of Jesus, one that we're going to spend much of our time on this morning. And that is, he was a weak sufferer. Jesus was a weak sufferer. You see, it's not often that we talk about the weakness of Christ. But that is exactly how he's described in this passage. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. For he, speaking of Jesus, shall grow up, Before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And the Bible says there that Jesus was like a tender plant. And one that was vulnerable because its root was in dry ground. When a plant grows out of dry ground, you can know that it's not going to be very strong. It's going to constantly struggle and strain for water and nourishment, fighting for its very existence. And that was the life of Jesus. It was a life of difficulty a life of sorrows, and yet that plant became the one true vine 
that sustains the entire world even today. Even though apparently he wasn't good looking, in, at least in human terms, we read that he had no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. You see, Jesus didn't have any physical attributes that would have drawn people to him to make them want to follow him for unrighteous reasons. Now, this isn't the description of movie star Jesus. Oh, you know, chiseled and long flowing locks. He probably wouldn't have been considered for a leading man role. He was like you and me. And being like you and me, that means he had times of hunger and thirst and pain and anguish and anxiousness and fear. And you say, wait, I mean, doesn't the Bible say that perfect love casts out fear? I mean, aren't those things sins? Well, no. Emotions themselves aren't sin. It's just our response to them that can become sin. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 5, 7 says, who was in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. And he experienced all those emotions because of, of his human weakness, because he became a man of sorrows. And like I said, that to me is, is maybe the most incredible of all the titles in the Bible of Jesus. I think the man of sorrows is the most incredible one. It, 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 I, I can't really grasp, grasp all of it. And it tells us a few things about our Savior. First of all, it tells us obviously that he was a man, that God was a man. And there's nothing profound in that statement other than the profoundness of the statement itself. So I, I know that telling you that God was a man, became a man, is nothing new. We all know that. We know that Jesus Christ, the Word, the second person of the Godhead, came to this earth as a born as a baby. That's, there's nothing profound for me to say. But what is profound is the fact that Jesus Christ... The Word, the second person of the Godhead, came to this earth as a baby. The fact that God, the self-sustaining and self-sufficient one who is outside of time and space, who spoke the world into existence, lowered himself to our level. That is incredible. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And when Paul says that though he was rich, was he talking about some earthly material wealth? No, of course not. What he was talking about here refers to his eternal glory. And, and I could prove that to you in Scripture, we just don't have time here. But it's talking about his eternal glory, the eternality of Christ, the preexistence of Christ the member of the eternal trinity and the eternality of Christ, listen carefully, is one of the most important, crucial truths in all of the Bible. There was never a moment that Jesus Christ did not exist. Now, not always in human form, obviously, but, but he was a member of the trinity. He is God, and he's eternal. And if Jesus is eternal... 
put this on your outline sheet, if Jesus is eternal, which he is, he is therefore God. And if he's God, he owns it all. Look at what Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12 says. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. That's how rich he is. He's, a, he's eternally rich, and I, I don't even know if that what that means, but that seems like a pretty big deal. And yet, for our sakes, he became poor. Not for his own sake, for your sake, for my sake. How amazing is that? That is the reason he became weak. The reason he became poor. Because we needed him to. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. He did it for us. Isn't that amazing? He was a man, and yet according to Romans 9, 5, he, he is over all, and God blessed forever. This is the great mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. You see, he, he who is God and was in the beginning God was made flesh and dwelt among us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, he said the highest stooped to become the lowest. The greatest took his place among the least. Strange and needing all of our faith to grasp, grasp it, yet it is true that he who sat upon the well of Sychar and said, give me to drink, was none other than he who dug the channels of the ocean and poured into them the floods. And listen, we should never get over this fact that the man Jesus Christ is God and that God as Jesus Christ was man. The deity of Christ is one of the most important doctrinal facts that we can grasp. And Jesus Christ's manhood was just as real as yours and mine, only differed from ours in the absence of sin. Right? Philippians 2.7 says, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, as it was made in the likeness of men. So God became man. How incredible. But this... Amazing title found in Isaiah 53.3 doesn't stop there. Because it says not only was he a man, he was a man of sorrows. And you need to understand that phrase because it does not say he was a sorrowful man. But a man of sorrows, as if he was made up of sorrows. You know, we give men titles like this sometimes. We'll say yeah, that, that's a man of wealth or a man of stature or a man of integrity. And if you would have lived alongside Jesus, what do you think you would have called him? Maybe a man of holiness or a man of love or a man of peace. And He was certainly all of those things. 
But the Bible calls him a man of sorrows. Lamentations 1.12 says, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of fierce anger. And now Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah, bemoaning the destruction of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem in Lamentations 1.12 also prefigures Christ. And the language prophetically points to the Lord Jesus Christ as a man of sorrows. And Jeremiah prophesied that folks would just pass him by, not even considering his sorrow, not even considering what he did. And of course, that's exactly what happened. When Jesus was on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, 39, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. You see, it was nothing to them, all them that passed by. His sorrow meant nothing. Well, let me ask you, how about you? Is it nothing to you? Is the sorrow that Jesus experienced on the cross as his father poured out his wrath, a day of fierce anger, according to Lamentations 1.12, do you just pass by it as it's brought to your remembrance? I hope that you don't. I hope that you remember it, at least today. So the Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows, and, and, and to me this is interesting because there's no record in Scripture that Jesus ever laughed. Now, I, I believe that he did laugh. I, I think if you read some of his interactions with his disciples, there's some funny stuff in there. But there's no record of Jesus laughing. There is record of him crying because he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. And we should always remember that, that God subjected himself to grief on our behalf when he became a man. Listen, he was, he was probably growing up, he's probably ribbed a little bit about his, his birth and his virgin mother. His brothers misunderstood him and didn't believe in him. He was called a wine-bibber and a glutton. He had no home to go to. Matthew 8, verse 20 says, And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Came to the point where he essentially became public enemy number one. In the time leading up to his crucifixion, the Pharisees offered a reward to anyone who would turn him in. He couldn't get his own disciples to stay awake to pray with him the night before his crucifixion. It's entirely true that he was rejected of men. In the words of the Apostle John, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But listen, even as we sit here today in 2023, that is still the case. He is still not received by most. And yet... He willingly died, even for those he knew would reject him. <clears throat> and that act is what, part of what makes him the man of sorrows. I would even say makes him the man of sorrows. Because all men, all of us, all men, all women, we all have a burden to bear. But there's no doubt 
that his burden was the heaviest of all. As he bore the weight of all, all of our sins on Calvary. He was the original innocent one that was punished for something someone else did. And yet he didn't demand his own rights. He laid it all down. Someone does something to us and we demand justice right away. I think it's safe to say that no person listening to my words has ever sweat drops of blood or in the same bitterness of anguish rightfully cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And again, he bore the weight of our sins. He sweat those drops of blood. He cried out to his Father in that way as someone who was not only innocent but sinless. You see, sin deserves punishment. And therefore, a sinner deserves sorrow. But he did not. And you need to consider this for a second. You and I were born with a sin nature. Jesus was not. He did not inherit that from his father. And since he did not have a sin nature, he was not in its, in its element amid sorrow. So I suspect that our Lord's pure nature had to be particularly sensitive of any contact with sin. We, on the other hand, by the fall, have lost much of that feeling. Sin isn't foreign to us. And therefore, neither is sorrow. But Jesus, being perfect, I have to believe every sin pained him much more than it would any of us. And listen, every sin this world has ever seen was, was laid to his charge. He was the man of sorrows. But it wasn't only the sin that he had to deal with, as if that wasn't enough. You see, he wasn't a man of sorrow. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows, plural. And he knew all kinds. All the sufferings of the body and the soul were known to him. The sorrows of the person who actively struggles with some addiction. Sorrows of the person who's abused and passively endures. The sorrows of the privileged he knew. He was the rightful king of Israel. The sorrows of the poor he knew, for he had not where to lay his head. Sorrows physical, sorrows mental, sorrows spiritual. Sorrows of all kind and degrees attacked him because he was a weak sufferer. But he wasn't only weak because, listen, his suffering wasn't forced upon him. And that means he was also willing. He wasn't only a weak sufferer, he was a willing sufferer. And Jesus explained that in his parable in John chapter 10. He let everyone know from the beginning how far his willingness went. <clears throat> John 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. And then down to verse 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. You see, he willingly suffered and willingly laid down his life. The devil didn't take it from him. No one took it from him. He laid it down. He didn't have to know grief. 
could have said enough is enough. He could have returned to the royalties of heaven. Or even if he stayed here, he could have lived indifferently to the woes of mankind. But he would not and did not. And he remained to the end out of his love for us, grief's acquaintance. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Because second, through that suffering, he became a worthy substitute. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his his stripes (coughs) we are healed. And this is another somber verse in this passage that points to everything we've been talking about already, except for the last seven words. And we hear more about his suffering, and then we hear, and with his stripes, we are healed. And what a great seven words those are. We, we are healed, and for those of us who ex- have accepted him in faith, we are healed because he was a substitute. Christ for the criminal. And we can even make this personal by the honest admission in the very next verse. We didn't read it, but Isaiah 53, verse 6 All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. That was all of us. We had gone our own way, not his way, and our way is a way of sin. And and we know what John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the way. His way is the only way. He is the only way. And if he's the only way, that means we need a substitute. This, of course, is the very heart of the gospel. The good news that Jesus took our place. I think think the gospel should be defined as great news, not just good news. Because that's exactly what it is. But realize that our healing comes through his stripes. Jesus' suffering was a necessary component to our salvation. It was a necessary component to our salvation. He took our sin upon himself, and, and even more that, he became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, speaking of God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was made sin so that we could be made righteous. And I don't know that I can fully comprehend the depths of that. But it's incredible. On the cross, Christ not only suffered humiliation, shame, and agony as that weak sufferer, he also became sin. And and nearly all of the commentaries out there that you'll read will say that that God turned Jesus into a sin offering, and hearkening back to the Old Testament, and and turned Jesus into a sin offering. And I understand that. I mean, he was the ultimate sacrifice. Ephesians 5.2 says, "And, and walk in love as Christ hath also loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. So he certainly was that sacrifice. But, but, but listen very carefully. 2 Corinthians 5.21 does not say that God turned Jesus into a sin offering. What that verse says is that God turned Jesus into sin. For he hath made him to be sin for us. He became sin personified. And just consider the next words. Who knew no sin? It doesn't merely say he did no sins. He knew none. 
We've, we've talked about this a little bit already, but sin was no acquaintance of his. So not only was he not guilty of any sin which he committed himself, but he was not guilty of our sins. But he took them on himself and became them anyway. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So when the judge of all the earth said, Where is sin? Christ presented himself. And the righteous God looked on Christ as being sin, and therefore Christ had to be taken without the camp. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without, outside the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. And, and that's because in the book of Leviticus, a person with leprosy, a, a picture of sin in the Bible, had to be removed from the camp. So Christ as sin had to be separated but listen, that, sep that separation turned into a substitution for you and me. So that we didn't have to be without the camp forever. So that we didn't have to be removed forever. He was the only worthy substitute acceptable to God. Man. But listen, because he was a weak sufferer and the only worthy substitute, I have to tell you this morning, that sure does make him a wonderful Savior. The man of sorrows sure makes a marvelous Savior. Listen, his worthiness and his willingness to suffer all for us should lead us to one and only one conclusion. And that is he's wonderful. He is wonderful. It's the Bible's conclusion of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says he's so wonderful that it's one of his names. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. And it goes on from there. And listen, his wonderfulness to us is shown greatest in his mightiness to save. Okay, Isaiah 63 verse 1 says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments of Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And if, you were, if we were to keep reading in Isaiah chapter 63, very clearly, this doctrinally is speaking about the second coming. When the Lord Jesus Christ will save Israel. But inspirationally, he is mighty to save still today. And I point that out because that mightiness to save, that strength was manifested through his weakness. Everything that we've already been talking about all morning. And that just blows my mind. And this really brings us to God's heart regarding the purpose of the Lord's Supper. This is what we are to remember the salvation that is available to us from his suffering and his substitution. And we are to fix our thoughts on that reality. We are to remember how wonderful he really is. 
And this is so important because that kind of remembering sets the, the stage, the proper stage for authentic worship of God. And I say that because true biblical worship is not about you and what you feel and the blessings you receive. True biblical worship is about Him and the glory He can get from us. You see, today we are not called to remember ourselves. We're called to obey that we might remember Him. That's what we're called. We're not called to remember ourselves. We're called to remember Him. This is what the Old Testament Passover was about when the Jews would have the Passover meal as, as, as a remembrance. They would remember that night in Egypt when they put the blood on the doorposts of the homes and, and God passed over them. And He did not bring judgment on that home because there was innocent blood of the Lamb that covered it. And God told that to remember and to observe it going forward. You can see that in Exodus 12, verse 42. And so every year when they celebrated the Passover meal, they looked back and said, yes, God delivered us by the blood of the Lamb from underneath His judgment. But now for us, Jesus says, this cup is a New Testament because He's our Passover, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And isn't that wonderful? As we sang earlier, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That he is, and I, I sure hope you know him as such. But now as we transition to actually partaking in this ordinance, and our minds are centered where they need to be centered, I want to read Paul's instruction of the Lord's Supper found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. Paul says, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. For for whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. See, as we've been talking about all morning, today's a day to remember. And that remembrance should naturally lead us to examination. Examination of where you're at with the Lord. Are you living a life that's glorifying to Him? Or have you taken for granted His suffering? Do you just pass by? Do you, take, you appreciate His substitution? Or are you in sin and need to get things right with him? And, and if you are, you should do that now. 
This ordinance is meant to help believers in Christ stay focused on him in the midst of a distracting, sin-filled world. So if there was a time in your life where you saw you were a sinner, you decided to trust Jesus for eternal life and prayed and asked God to save you, and, and you're old enough and understand enough to examine yourself in the faith, then you're welcome to partake in com this communion with us. And if you don't meet those requirements, then, then this ordinance is not for you. Now, if, if you take it, nothing will happen, but, but that's the point. Nothing will happen because it doesn't have the significance for you that God intends. But if you are saved, then this is the ordinance Jesus uses us to remember the fact that we are feeding on him, that he is to be our all in all. Psalm 119 verse 103 says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, ye sweeter than honey to my mouth. He is able to sustain us in all areas, but you have to remember him today. Remember his sacrifice and all that he's done and choose your, to live your life through him. At this time, I'd like to ask the worship team to come up and the men that are serving, go ahead. And, um, and Todd, they, as soon as they come up, they can go ahead and, and serve right away. So they'll be making their way, the men will be making their way through the auditorium and serving the, the cup and the bread. After you receive the cup, please hold on to it until I give you further instruction. And so I will tell you when to eat so that we can partake of, of the bread and juice as one. I'll tell you when to drink and we'll do it together so we can express our unity in Christ together. But now as they're going about and as they're um, distributing the elements, this is your time. This is your time for personal examination and, 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 and personal confession and reflection before the Lord.